There's still a good, thorough study to be written about the effects of climate on music. Climate seems to have had a pronounced effect in the case of Mendelssohn's third and fourth symphonies. In 1829, the 20-year-old Mendelssohn came to Britain for the first time. Here he enjoyed huge success. He was still young enough to be regarded as at least a kind of wunderkind. And buoyed up by the adulation he received, he set off for a tour of Scotland with his friend, the diplomat and poet Karl Klingemann. For German romantics, Scotland was a land positively drenched with atmospheric associations. These came via the novels of Walter Scott, which were the rage on the continent, and also via the poetry of the alleged bard Ossian. Actually, the Ossian poems were really created by a Scottish minister called Macpherson, but that didn't prevent them from becoming hugely popular. If Mendelssohn was looking for inspiration, he was in luck. A voyage by boat to the impressive caves on the island of Staffa provided a theme, which he sketched in a letter, that became the beginning of the famous Hebrides Overture, or Fingal's Cave, as it's sometimes known. Listening to the opening, you can sense the tug of the waves, the pitching of the boat as we approach the dark mystery of the cave itself. Before Mendelssohn got to the Western Isles and Fingal's Cave, however, there was the Scottish capital Edinburgh to digest. Edinburgh at that time was known amongst philosophers as the Athens of the North, not just for its many fine neoclassical buildings, but also for the reputation of thinkers like the philosopher David Hume, the economist Adam Smith, the geologist James Hutton and the physicist Joseph Black. But it wasn't that so much that set Mendelssohn's imagination working, as he wrote home in a letter. When God himself takes to panorama painting, it turns out strangely beautiful. Few of my Switzerland reminiscences can compare to this. Everything looks so stern and robust, half enveloped in a haze of smoke or fog. and goes on with his description. Many Highlanders came in costume from church, victoriously leading their sweethearts in their Sunday attire and casting magnificent and important looks over the world. They passed quietly along by the half-ruined grey castle on the meadow where Mary Stuart lived in splendour and saw her rumoured lover David Rizzio murdered.
It was while he was standing in Mary Stuart's ruined chapel at Holyrood Palace, contemplating so much that was and so much that is, that the idea came to Mendelssohn of writing a Scottish symphony. First he had to finish the Hebrides, that took him to 1830. Then he turned to the symphony. But by now Mendelssohn had left Scotland for Italy, a country the absolute antithesis of all that is stern and robust, where you'll find nothing even half enveloped in a haze or smoke or fog. Instead, everything is thrown into bright relief by the sun. And very quickly that began suggesting a different kind of music. Warm Italian sun expressed in music, the beginning of the Italian symphony, now known as number four. Now, musicologists love puncturing or debunking any kind of romantic associative thinking. They tend to view it as another version of the so-called pathetic fallacy. But it really does seem to me as though Mendelssohn was susceptible to atmospheres, and he found that Italy just wouldn't let him continue mining the misty northern vein of fantasy that inspired the beginning of his Scottish symphony. So he put this Scottish project on one side for a while. In fact, he didn't complete it until 1842, 13 years after the inspiration apparently first struck him. Could it be that in time, as much as in place, distance lends enchantment? We can't tell how many of the musical ideas in the symphony, which came to be known as Number 3, were conceived during Mendelssohn's seminal encounter with Scotland, but the unconscious workings of the mind are fascinating. The two aspects of Scotland that seem to have endured are, first, the atmosphere, the fogs, the smoke, the absence of strong light, the shadows, that quality of twilight called the gloaming, or the familiar overcast skies, summed up in that splendid Scottish word drich. According to one online dictionary, drich is a combination of dull, overcast, drizzly, cold, misty and miserable, and that kind of weather is reflected back through the sombre colours of Scottish house interiors, particularly the oak and mahogany furniture, stern and robust, yet also strangely alluring. You can feel the sense of those deep, dark colourings in the opening of Mendelssohn's Scottish Symphony, the music we've already heard. Concentrate on the sounds, low, dusky wind harmonies, a melody on the oboes and divided violas. It really goes with that whole idea. Having developed this pleasingly dark colour scheme in an unusually long, slow introduction, you might expect Mendelssohn to go for contrast in the main allegro. But no, he opts for a colour later much loved by an indigenous far northerner, Tchaikovsky, strings and low clarinet.
The first movement of Mendelssohn's Scottish Symphony is very much a dark-on-dark -dark fantasy. Now, in a symphonic first movement in the minor key, the second theme is usually in the brighter, contrasting major. But Mendelssohn continues in that sombre minor vein, first with a new version of the first theme, which we heard on low clarinet, then with a more ardent singing theme, still, however, very much in the melancholic minor key. wonderful to see how much the Scottish theme stimulates Mendelssohn's lyric imagination in this music. It isn't just a question of colours. And when eventually the sombre clarinet theme returns in full, it's accompanied by a beautiful singing counter-melody on cellos. Now, Mendelssohn is especially good at counter-melodies, taking a pre-existent theme and weaving a new singing line around it, and this one is particularly effective. You notice the way at the end of that sadly lilting theme, Mendelssohn hands it over to deep cellos and basses. This movement really is dark upon dark, right through to the beautifully engineered return of the original slow introductory theme at the very end. That lyrical counter-melody we just heard on the cellos reminds me of something else that seems to have left a lasting impression on Mendelssohn. I'm talking about folk music, and the folk music of Scotland is a particularly rich field. It's interesting because by the time Mendelssohn left the British Isles, he seems to have been suffering from serious folk overkill. He'd moved on now from Scotland to Wales, but the reaction was pretty inclusive. No more national music for me. Ten thousand devils take all nationality. It drives me to distraction and has given me toothache already. But the lasting impression left by Scottish folk music seems to have been a lot more positive, or at least it does if the Scottish symphony is any indication. Back in Edinburgh, Mendelssohn had revelled in the atmosphere of a bagpipe festival, drinking in impressions of, as he put it, Highlanders with long red beards, tartan plaids, bonnets and feathers, naked knees, their bagpipes in their hands. And he clearly remembered some of the salient features of the music too, like the pentatonic scale to which the bagpipes are tuned. This is a five-note scale with a minimum of dissonance. That five-note scale, essential to bagpipe music, is the basis of the joyous, rapid theme of the second movement, the scherzo.
Did you notice how that theme got louder, stronger? First, it was on a solo clarinet, then a gradually increasing number of woodwind, then it's taken up by brass and timpani. It gives the effect of a bagpipe band itself getting closer. There's also evidence that the spectacle of folk dancing stayed in Mendelssohn's mind, and we find that in the theme of the finale. This is marked Allegro Vivacissimo, lively, as vital as possible. It easily conjures up images of rapid, fancy footwork, the kind of thing familiar to modern viewers from Riverdance. OK, that's not quite the right Celtic country, but there are definitely close Scottish relatives, the kind of thing that must have inspired this. textures, meditations on so much that was and so much that is, impressions of folk music. All this would become the stuff of romantic nationalism later in the 19th century. But in 1829, when the Scottish Symphony first occurred to Mendelssohn, such notions were still very new. Berlioz's revolutionary programme symphonies were still to come. For some reason, we don't tend to think of Mendelssohn today as an innovator, but he truly was. Here's a quote for you. This is the great 19th, early 20th century Austrian conductor Felix Weingartner on Mendelssohn. Had Mendelssohn only titled his orchestral works as symphonic poems, the title Liszt invented later, he would probably be celebrated today as the creator of programme music and would have taken his position at the beginning of a new period rather than the end of an old one. He would then be referred to as the first of the moderns instead of the last of the classics. You can see the truth of that reflected too in another very new feature of the Scottish symphony. All of the four movements are linked, or at least separated by the shortest of pauses. It's often said that the reason for Mendelssohn doing this is that he couldn't stand applause between movements of a symphony. But I think that's belittling his achievement. And there was an awful lot of belittling of Mendelssohn in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It's quite clear from the Scottish Symphony that there are deeper reasons for the connections between the movements in this work. The ends and beginnings of movements are contrived so that each new movement seems to pick up on the ending of the previous one. Take the ending of the first movement, for instance. This seems to break up, to fragment. And then we have shimmering mist on the strings, which turns, via woodwind and horn calls, into the much brighter atmosphere of a folk festival. It's like turning aside from one scene to contemplate another.
Still more striking than that is the way that the slow third movement seems to react emotionally to the end of that folk festival in the second. The opening sighing figures on the violin aren't just a musical transition, they're an emotional transition too. We can imagine the spectator, the romantic wanderer, turning aside from communal celebration to private, pensive utterance. If you look at Mendelssohn's Scottish Symphony as a whole, it really isn't a conventional classical four-movement symphony, but something much closer to a continuous programme symphony in four linked stages. Having the slow introductory theme from the beginning of the first movement return after the stormy drama of Allegro to round things off is rather like a bard bringing us gently back to the present after the depiction of an epic past. That's very romantic, but then so too is the way that the second movement seems to emerge from the ending of the first. And at the end of the symphony, Mendelssohn does something highly unorthodox from a classical point of view. The fast-action footwork of the finale theme fades. It seems to disappear back into some of those melancholic mists from the first movement. There's a pause. Then a new theme emerges in a new tempo, a new metre, and a new mood. theme leads to a warmly major key affirmative ending, an excellent envoy for a work dedicated to Her Majesty Queen Victoria of Great Britain and Ireland. But there's still that rich, grainy, dark orchestral colouring from the first movement's introduction, the low woodwind horns and again divided violas, and it's similar in shape to the theme of the first movement introduction too. And just as that theme originally returned to round off the first movement, so we now have a relative of it, in a very similar instrumental costume, returning to round off the symphony. 
In fact, an awful lot of this triumphal coda of the finale looks back to motives from the first movement, but it isn't an orthodox recapitulation in the formal classical sense. It's more like a memory, and just as memories are transformed when we recall them, so these musical memories are creatively transformed too. It's another highly original stroke, and there are so many in this remarkable symphony. It really is about time Mendelssohn got full credit for what he achieved here.